Section 25 of The Colonel's Dream This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Colonel's Dream by Charles Chestnut Section 25 Chapter 25 it was not yet sunrise when the colonel set out next day, after an early breakfast, upon his visit to Fetters. There was a crisp freshness in the air. The dew was thick upon the grass. The clear blue sky gave promise of a bright day and a pleasant journey. The plantation conducted by Fetters lay about twenty miles to the south of Clarendon, and remote from any railroad, a convenient location for such an establishment, for railroads, while they bring in supplies and take out produce, also bring in light and take out information, both of which are fatal to certain fungus growths, social as well as vegetable, which flourish best in the dark. The road led by Mink Run, and the colonel looked over toward the house as they passed it. Old and weather-beaten, it seemed, even in the distance, which lent it no enchantment in the bright morning light. When the colonel had traveled that road in his boyhood, great forests of primeval pine had stretched for miles on either hand, broken at intervals by thriving plantations. Now all was changed. The tall and stately growth of the longleaf pine had well-nigh disappeared. Fifteen years before, the turpentine industry, moving southward from Virginia, along the upland counties of the Appalachian Slope, had swept through Clarendon County leaving behind it a trail of blasted trunks and abandoned stills. Ere these had yielded to decay, the sawmill had followed, and after the sawmill, the tar kiln, so that the dark green forest was now only a waste of blackened stumps and undergrowth, topped by the vulgar short-leaved pine and an occasional oak or juniper. Here and there they passed an expanse of cultivated land, and there were many smaller clearings in which could be seen, ploughing with gaunt mules or stunted steers, some heavy-footed negro or listless po-white man, or women and children, black or white. In reply to a question, the coachman said that Mr. Fetters had worked all that country for turpentine years before, and had only taken up cotton-raising after the turpentine had been exhausted from the sand-hills. He had left his mark thought the colonel. Like the plague of locusts, he had settled and devoured, and then moved on, leaving a barren waste behind him. As the morning advanced, the settlements grew thinner, until suddenly, upon reaching the crest of a hill, a great stretch of cultivated lowland lay spread before them. In the center of the plantation, near the road which ran through it, stood a square, new, freshly painted frame-house, which would not have seemed out of place in some Ohio or Michigan city, but here struck a note alien to its surroundings. Off to one side, like the negro quarters of another generation, were several rows of low, unpainted cabins, built of sawed lumber, the boards running up and down, and battened with strips where the edges met. The fields were green with cotton and with corn, and there were numerous gangs of men at work, with an apparent zeal quite in contrast with the leisurely movement of those they had passed on the way. It was a very pleasing scene. "'Dis year, sir,' said the coachman, in an awed tone, 
is Mr. Fetter's plantation. You ain't going off nowhere and leave me alone while you are here, is you, sir? No, said the colonel. I'll keep my eye on you. Nobody will trouble you while you're with me. Passing a clump of low trees, the colonel came upon a group at sight of which he paused involuntarily. A gang of negroes were at work. Upon the ankles of some was riveted an iron band, to which was soldered a chain, at the end of which, in turn, an iron ball was fastened. Accompanying them was a white man, in whose belt was stuck a revolver, and who carried in one hand a stout leather strap, about two inches in width, with a handle by which to grasp it. The gang paused momentarily to look at the traveller, but at a meaning glance from the overseer fell again to their work of hoeing cotton. The white man stepped to the fence, and Colonel French addressed him. "'Good morning.' "'Morning, sir.' "'Will you tell me where I can find Mr. Fetters?' inquired the colonel. "'No, sir, unless he's at the house. He may have went away this morning, but I haven't heard of it.' but you drive along the road to the house, and somebody'll tell you. The colonel seemed to have seen the overseer before, but could not remember where. Sam, he asked the coachman, who is that white man? That's Mr. Haynes, sir. Used to be the constable at Clarendon, sir. I wouldn't like to be in no gang under him, sir. Show I wouldn't. No, sir. After this ejaculation, which seemed sincere as well as fervent, Sam whipped up the horses and soon reached the house. A negro boy came out to meet them. "'Is Mr. Fetters at home?' inquired the colonel. "'I, I don't know, sir. I, I'll ask Ma's Turner. He's here.' He disappeared round the house and in a few minutes returned with Turner, with whom the colonel exchanged curt nods. I wish to see Mr. Fetters, said the colonel. Well, you can't see him. Why not? Because he ain't here. He left for the capital this morning, to be gone a week. You'll be having a fine drive down here and back. The colonel ignored the taunt. When will Mr. Fetters return? He inquired. I'm sure I don't know. He don't tell me his secrets. But I'll tell you, Colonel French, that if you're after that nigger, you're wasting your time. He's in Haines' gang, and Haines loves him so well that Mr. Fetters has to keep Bud in order to keep Haines. There's no accounting for these violent affections, but they're human nature, and they have to be humored. I'll talk to your master, rejoined the colonel, restraining his indignation and turning away. Turner looked after him vindictively. He'll talk to my master like as if I was a nigger. It'll be a long time before he talks to Fetters, if that's who he means, if I can prevent it. Not that it would make any difference, but I'll just keep him on the anxious seat. It was nearing noon, but the colonel had received no invitation to stop or eat or feed his horses. He ordered Sam to turn and drive back the way they had come. As they neared the group of laborers they had passed before, the colonel saw four negroes, in response to an imperative gesture from the overseer, seize one of their number, a short, thick-set fellow, overpower some small resistance which he seemed to make, throw him down with his face to the ground, 
and sit upon his extremities while the overseer applied the broad leathern thong vigorously to his bare back. The colonel reached over and pulled the reins mechanically. His instinct was to interfere. Had he been near enough to recognize in the negro the object of his visit, Bud Johnson, and in the overseer the ex-constable Haines, he might have yielded to the impulse. But on second thought he realized that he had neither authority nor strength to make good his interference. For aught he knew, the performance might be strictly according to law. So, fighting a feeling of nausea which he could hardly conquer, he ordered Sam to drive on. The coachman complied with alacrity, as though glad to escape from a mighty dangerous place. He had known friendless colored folks, who had strayed down in that neighborhood, to be lost for a long time, and he had heard of a spot far back from the road in a secluded part of the plantation, where the graves of convicts who had died while in Fetter's service were very numerous. End of section 25 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista